verse 30. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban for another seven years. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my, my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Chapter 30, verse 1. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister. And she said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? She said, Here is my maid, Bilhah. Go into her, that she may bear on my knees, that through her I too may have children. So she gave him her maid, Bilhah, as his wife. And Jacob went in to her. To her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she named him Dan. Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, how fortunate. She named him Gad. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Now in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And you would take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, therefore, he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. When Leah came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come with me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. God gave heed to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. Let us pray. 
Our good and gracious God, we come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the strength and power of the Holy Spirit that resides in each of yours. We pray that this morning, God, as we consider your word, that you would give listening to our ears, understanding to our minds, and believing to our hearts. And we pray that as we see this scene being played out right before our eyes, that just as you are untwisting the twistedness of this family, that you by your word would also untwist the bounds of sin upon our lives and help us, Lord, to die to them all. Help us, Lord, to see Christ as our greatest treasure. We ask all of this for the glory of God and for the good of your people. Amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, we come now to an absolutely embarrassing story of love, of jealousy, of immaturity and insecurity, of faithlessness and misplaced desires. And no, it is not the latest episode of the daily soap opera. It is not as the old ones from my side of the family, my mom's side would say, it is not the novella of today, though it very much so reads like one, doesn't it? Rather than it being an actual soap opera, it is the written and inspired, eternal and inerrant word of God that we are reading. Before us today is what becomes of a man when he seeks to go his own way. And what happens when one forsakes the wisdom and the counsel of the Lord. And there is something rather appealing to us in this narrative, isn't there? As you read it, isn't there something that, that simply draws you and I into this narrative? And could it be... But the reason why you and I are drawn into this narrative is because we can see our own reflection in this narrative. We are a people who are often unsatisfied in Christ. We are a people who often seek satisfaction and fulfillment in other people and things rather than in Christ. We are a people who, who often go our own way. And who, though unlike Jacob, we have the full revelation of God, the full revelation of God's will for his people. And yet, we so often, more often than not, neglect his revelation for our own will and way. We are a people who often find ourselves filled with anger, filled with frustration as we look at the good lives, as we would see them, of others and envy what they have. And at the end of the day, we are not really angry with those people, but at the end of the day, we are actually angry at God. In our hearts, we blame him for not giving to us what it appears as though he has given to others. At the end of the day, we blame him for somehow being unfair to us, that we somehow deserved better but that he chose to give better to somebody else. 
Do you see that this was Jacob's mess? It was Jacob who entangled himself into these, not two marriages, but in fact, we will find out at the end of this chapter, he will have not one, not two, not three, but four wives. And the very chaos that arises from these relationships clearly displays to us that God never approved of such polygamy. This was Jacob's doing. This was Jacob's mess. The whole story is embarrassingly reminiscent of the kind of things that we've seen on television, isn't it? Jacob has had the most amazing vision of God, but more recently his life has been thrown into absolute and total confusion. He's been deceived by his mother's brother, and he is basically Laban's prisoner for a decade and a half. He was married to a woman that he did not love. And now the woman that he does love is unable to bear him any children. We could begin our exposition of this text by saying, and now for this week's episode in the soap opera that is Jacob's life, stay tuned. The story will take a turn for the worse. We now have uh, 11 children in this story. 11 children with an exclamation point. There are four wives, and there is only but one man. And all because at the end of the day, there are three people, Jacob, Leah, and Rachel, who have failed to sing the anthem of the believer, which is this, Lord, keep us steadfast in thy word. There is an overarching covenant promise, though, in Jacob's life. There is an overarching promise from God that governs all that transpires in the life of Jacob. And it is this promise that God has said that he would be with Jacob through it all. That he would go with Jacob. That God would give him land, make him a great nation. And that from that nation, all nations would be blessed. That God would return Jacob to his homeland. And, and that God would not leave him. Until all that he has said and all that he has promised has been accomplished. What a promise. What a wonderful promise maker. And what a wonderful promise keeper God is. But this is a very sad, sad story, isn't it? It is a sad story about three people who have not prayed that they would be kept steadfast in God's word. And at the end of the passage, each of them have gone through experiences in which they felt deeply trapped in. With no exit door. And why? Because instead of inwardly resting in the word of God, they have rebelled against him. It's all begun with deception, hasn't it? Not just the deception that's taken place here in the life of Jacob, but the deception that began in the Garden of Eden when Satan deceived Eve and then Eve leads her husband astray and then the web becomes more and more twisted 
until it appears that there's just no way out of this. And we're reminded again of those words that I had to look up by Walter Scott, who said, oh, what a tangled web we weave when at first we practice to deceive. This could be you. This could be me. Perhaps this is you. <laughs> perhaps this is your family. And perhaps the web of sin that you have found yourselves trapped in it seems literally inescapable. Perhaps you feel trapped in your sin or in your situation. And perhaps you see no way out. And perhaps you can't see any way through. The message of this chapter is the message of the entire story, and it is this. God is able to enter through and enter into the most tangled webs that we could ever weave. And God will take his time. And though it may be painful to remove you and I from our entanglements of sin, our failures, or our inability to trust in the providences of God, know this. That God is able to work all things together for the good. This situation, this entanglement, thank God, was not beyond God's power to redeem. Was not beyond God's power to transform. For His glory and for your good. Now then... What are the lessons that we can gather this morning from this text? I have three with God's help that I would like us to consider. Number one, grace that is poured out on Leah. We considered this passage last week, and I, I do encourage you, if you've not heard last week's sermon, go back and hear that. But I do believe there is much more to this portion of Scripture that is to be learned. And it begins by summarizing the great conflict between Rachel and Leah, Leah and Rachel, and it is this in verse 30. So Jacob went in to Rachel also. And indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah. Of course, you and I know that Laban deceived Jacob. Rather than giving Jacob to Rachel, the desire of his heart he gave him to Leah, the older, who was undesired by Jacob. And this section begins with God's gracious, unexpected blessing to Leah. She was clearly, because the scriptures make it clear, the less attractive of the two sisters. She was, dare I say, the slightly uglier sister, whereas the younger was described as having sparkle and having beauty. Leah, by comparison, was plain. There was nothing, uh, uh, apparently nothing, that would cause someone to stop and take notice of Leah on account of her beauty because she was simply 
plain. But we all know, and we should know, that being plain does not make you long any less for a husband or a wife. Wouldn't it be strange if only the beautiful people were to be married? It, wouldn't it be strange if, if only the beautiful people wanted to be married? Or that only the handsome people got married? That's not the case. Leah longs for a husband. But she has gotten a husband and has left disdain and hatred on the heart of the man that she has gained. She has left hatred and disdain on the heart of the man that she has married. For she has been united to him through the deceit of her father. And if truth be told, she also played a part in this deceit. And Jacob knew this very well. Yes, she was her father's pawn in his deceit. Yes, she was forced in one sense to go along with the master plan of Laban to deceive Jacob. But she also was a free creature who could make decisions of her own. She could have suffered the consequences of refusing to go along with her father's de deceit. But at least she would have not been caught up and joined to a man who does not love her. And who very possibly resents her. Just as Rebecca and Jacob stole Esau's birthright, now Laban and Leah still Jacob's wife. She's married to the man her sister loves and to the man who loves her sister. Leah, as it were, has stretched out both hands to have and to hold Jacob. But she has discovered in having Jacob she now has lost Jacob. She now has Jacob. But Jacob does not have love for her. Jacob does not love her the way that she loves him. Isn't that a sad predicament to be in? To love someone who does not love you and who will never love you the way that you love them. And yet, God has an amazing, loving, kind mercy upon her. Verse 31, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb. Lest we think for one moment that God was feeling sorry for Leah. So in order to cheer her up, God opened her womb. Let us not for one moment conclude that thought. That may be the way the scriptures read, but we must remember this. God is impass impassable. God is not moved in a reactionary sense. No, our God is without body or parts or passions. So how are we then to understand God looking upon Leah and blessing her in a particular way? We are to understand that it was the eternal decree of God to have mercy upon this unloved woman. That God 
that she would be the one through whom God would build the priesthood, the one through whom God would build the line of kings. And we must not ignore the fact that God did, in fact, see her affliction. Why? For God sees all. There is not one thing that passes the eye of God without his knowing. He was not blind to Leah's heartache. And he is not blind to the heartaches of you as well. He knows our aches. He gives compassion to the weak. He gives mercy to the weary. He comforts the downtrodden. And he is the mender of broken hearts. The Lord saw the antagonism of her husband to her. And in his mercy, the Lord opened the womb of Leah and gave to her children. Only God can do this. The womb of a woman is opened because of God. And the womb of a woman is also closed because of God. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Even though Leah has grasped and taken hold of that which was not hers and lost it, namely Jacob, the Lord was still merciful to her. And there is a sense here in the very language that she uses that the sovereign Lord is working in her life to a certain extent. And to a certain extent, she realizes that God is working in her life. In verse 32, she says, uh, the Bible says, Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction. She says, the Lord has looked upon me. And would you notice in your scriptures that the word Lord, the name of the Lord is capitalized there. It is the way that the translation helps us to see that Leah was calling upon, evoking the name of Yahweh, the covenant name of the Lord. It's not just God or Lord in any general sense, but it is the Lord who makes covenant with his people. It is the Lord, the one who saves his people from their afflictions. And look at what she is saying. The Lord has looked upon my affliction. Then again in verse 33, the Lord has heard that I am hated. But do you, you see and notice something else that is taking place? Have you noticed that when God touches your life, when God touches my life, there is still much work yet to be done in terms of transforming us from who we were to who he is calling us to be. The Lord is at work in the soul of Leah. This is undeniable. But she is yet glorified. Rather, she was painfully being sanctified. She sees the mercy of the Lord. But she sees the mercy of the Lord as a means of getting what she wants. Do you see that? The Lord has seen that I am afflicted. The Lord has seen that I am hated. And he has given me a child. Surely now my husband will love me. You see that? God is at work in me. I see that. 
Now I'll get what I want. Now I'll be rich. Now I'll be prosperous. Now all the world will recognize me. As if God was giving her these children so that Jacob would love her. Do you see that? Dear ones, uh, might I burst some of your idealistic bubbles this morning? God is not interested in giving to us what we want. God is not interested in giving to us what we want. This is not the message of the scriptures. God is intent on giving his people what they need. And what do we need? We need forgiveness. We need faith. We need grace, salvation, a substitute, sanctification, holiness, glorification, just to name a few. But I thought God would give me the desires of my heart. Yes. Yes, he will. When you walk with him, you will learn to desire what he desires. And your desires will be conformed to his desires. And your prayer daily, my prayer daily should be this. Lord, help me to desire what you desire so that I might glorify you in my life. Lord, I want to be, uh, I want to have cars and houses. You don't need, per se, to rely upon God for that. Many who have denied God have gotten those things and God has allowed it. But to live a life that glorifies him, to live a life that honors him, oh, you need him to ask, you need he you need him to give you the desires of his heart that you may live in that way. God is interested in transforming our lives. And because she, Leah, is not submissive to this, you will notice that when the second son was born, she says, because the Lord has heard that I am hated. What's she relying upon? What's she depending upon for, for all of these things that are transpiring to to turn out for good she's relying upon her husband to one day love her she goes back to this old relationship with jacob and with her sister and she feels hated she believes that god is giving her children here here it is so that god can prove her right oh may god have mercy on us when this is our disposition that god is somehow doing what he is doing so that we can be proved right in our lives, not in the least. God does all things for his own glory, not ours. God does all things for his glory, which results in our good, not in our being right. Not so that we can thumb our noses at those who have afflicted us and said, told you so. Leah was beginning to lose spiritual ground for this reason. She's losing spiritual ground because in receiving the blessings of God, she's lost sight of the fact that the grace of God has appeared to us to make us holy, not haughty. The grace of God has come to us to transform us and to make us like his son. The grace of God does not appear in the first instance to satisfy our native desires. 
but to transform our lives. She has the glorious sense of mercy breaking into her heart. But there are still weeds that are wrapped around her heart that need to be uprooted. There are still thorns and thistles that have wrapped themselves around her heart that need to be killed and uprooted. And those thorns and thistles are beginning to, as the Lord Jesus Christ said in this parable, they are beginning to choke the very promises and word of God that have been heard in her ear. Notice verse 34. Now this time, after her third conception, now this time, my husband will be attached to me. Not the first time, not the second time, but the third time is a charm. Now my husband will be attached to me. But sadly for Leah, Jacob is just as unattached to her after the third child as he was before she even bore one child from him. Brothers and sisters, do you see that Leah was grasping for all of the wrong things? She's putting all of her hope, all of her aspirations into the hands of a created being. She's obsessed with Jacob in a way. He and his love have become a type of idol to Leah. Jacob for Leah was her oxygen. She presents herself as one who would completely suffocate and die without his love. Dear ones, may I ask you this morning, is there anything like that in your life? That you might say, I will absolutely suffocate and die if that is removed from me. Or if I don't have it. If there is anything, I pray to you or I beg to you that you would pray to the Lord to kill that in your heart. But then God, mercifully, lovingly, and graciously begins to put the pressures of grace in her life. And she's able to see things more clearly. She's being pressed, as it were. And she conceives a fourth time and says in verse 35, This time I will praise the Lord. Do you see in time number one? No. Time number two, no. Time number three, wrong response, wrong response, wrong response. That's our lives, isn't it? How many times have you gone through something over and over and over again, and, and each time you've said, I, I've gone through this before, and every single time I go through it, I, I always seem to have the wrong response. This time I will ask the Lord to give me grace and to give me strength that I might respond in the right way. This time. By the grace of God, this time I will praise the Lord. I will not worry about gaining praise or gaining love for my husband. This time I will give all praise and all glory to the Lord. It's remarkable. It is a remarkable work of grace that is poured out in the heart of this poor woman. It would appear that she is finally, finally 
learned where her true and, and, and lasting satisfaction is found. Can I say to you that true joy and satisfaction is found in Christ alone? Christ gives us joy that is complete. Christ gives us peace unlike the world's peace. Christ gives rest to the weary and heavy laden. Christ welcomes the sick and rejected. But as the story goes on, we are going to learn that a grace that is received, that isn't applied in an ongoing way in rooting out the thorns and thistles in our hearts, that that grace may eventually be choked by those thorns and by those thistles so that we are scarcely able to believe that God is actually at work in our lives. Leah's story is a story of grace that is poured out and yet grace that is resisted. Here is a story of God's mercy revealed and yet God's mercy, as it were, kept at a level of her, her comfort with God's mercy. Do you understand that? I appreciate the mercy of God in saving me, but I will only allow that mercy to affect my life so far. I will only allow the grace of God and the word of God and the commands of God to be so applied to such a degree in my life that I am comfortable with. Radically transform me? I'm not so much ready for all of that. Instead of bowing down and saying, Lord, these are your gracious providences. Lord, my life is in your hands. I release everything into your hands, not my husband's hands, but to yours. Rather, it is a story that begins with her taking those steps forward and then taking many steps backward. She's resisting the sanctifying work of God in her life. And it, it is portrayed and displayed in amazing and vivid ways. Here is our second point, the inevitable consequences of resisting God's grace. The inevitable consequences of resisting God's grace. This is verses 1 through 14. I'm not going to read them again. Before us is a graphic scene of two sisters bitterly fighting over an idol that they have both shared. Jacob. Rachel, we are told, was barren. And this brought shame upon women of that particular time. In other words, Rachel had the love of her husband while Leah had the children of her husband. We are told that this is actually, uh, this was naturally a great grief to Rachel. When Rachel saw that she bore no children to Jacob, she envied her sister Leah. Because her sister had the blessing, the blessing that had been denied to her, the blessing of children. But isn't this interesting? Leah has spent her whole life possibly envying her more sparkly and beautiful sister. And now the tables have turned. Rachel now envies Leah. We must be very clear. This is a world full of many griefs and sorrows, isn't it? This is a world where things often go terribly wrong. 
Before I came up to minister, I was looking at my phone and I received a text message from one of our members who said, Pastor, I was on the way to church and sent me actually a picture, which is why I was looking at it. I was on my way to church going into my parking lot and someone slashed my tires. We won't be able to make it this morning. The Lord Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. There is great encouragement, though, at the end of that statement. But behold, he has overcome the world. But it doesn't deny the fact that we will experience trouble. One of our brothers asked for a request of prayer this morning and saying, someone who has antagonized our family, he's gone away and now he's back. We would expect that sometimes from the the non-believing world. But it seems that believers often are the ones who say, there is trouble in my life. Great and grave trouble. And we must not deny that Leah was in a position in life that brought her much understandable grief. She wants a child. She desires a good thing, to have children. And the one who has taken her husband seems to be pregnant every time she turns around. It would have been proper and understandable even for Rachel to be discouraged. But might I say to you, dear ones, it is one thing to be discouraged because of all of the things that go wrong in your life. To be discouraged because some of your most basic needs are denied or seem to be denied. But it is another thing altogether to allow that discouragement to fester and to grow into envy and jealousy. To develop a green eye. This is exactly what happened. It was altogether appropriate for her to be grieved. But not at all altogether appropriate for her to be filled with the sin of envy and jealousy. Now, Rachel does not say that she was jealous, does it? The scriptures did not say, and Rachel was jealous because of Leah. No. But it's very clear in the scriptures that she was jealous. And it's one of the ways in which we need to read the scriptures. We know things because the text tells us what people don't actually say. (laughs) Because in real life, people don't always actually say what's in their hearts. But it eventually comes out. It always comes out. She says to Jacob, Look at that in verse 1. Give me children, or, or else what? Or else I will die. Would she die if she didn't have any children? No. She's being a little dramatic here, and it's appropriate for the soap opera that is Jacob's life. She's playing the part perfectly. The, the Emmy goes to. Can you imagine this? And Jacob responds... What are you looking at me for? He seems fed up, doesn't he? He seems exhausted with the drama between these two sisters who are always fighting over him. And he fires back at his beloved wife. What am I to do with this? Why are you looking? Don't blame me. Am I God? Am I in the place of God? Now, Jacob knows what all who have been brought from death to life know, that only the Lord gives life. He has good theology, but good theology in a bad spirit. 
meaning this. Having good theology is not the same. It's not the same thing as actually being truly spiritual, meaning this. You can have all the right answers and yet give them in all the wrong ways. My wife has taught me that over time. And I don't have all the right answers by any means. But I more often than not deliver them in the wrong way. You can say the right thing and say it the wrong way. And I've learned that they actually both matter. Jacob did not say, my dear, we have been given, I have been given precious promises from God. Let us therefore go to him and pray together. There's not one single word of prayer here. There's nothing about it. There's nothing about we must be kept steadfast in the word of promise. Rather, there is just deep-seated antagonism against God that is emerging as the situation seems to, to be purely horizontal. It's all about what God is doing. And that's really the point. Jacob knows life is from the Lord. Therefore, Rachel's problem is not really with Jacob. Rachel's problem is not really with Leah. <laughs> Rachel's problem is with God. Underneath Rachel's anger towards Jacob and Jacob's anger towards Leah and, and Rachel's anger towards Leah and Leah's frustration with Jacob is all of this really frustration and anger towards God. What has happened or not happened in your life that has caused you to be absolutely angry or resentful towards God? What are you holding against him this morning? How have you doubted his goodness toward you? The customer that my brother, Pastor Isaiah, was speaking of this morning and speaking to her daughter who was... Uh, recounting to me how her mother passed. It was something like this. She woke up in the morning and said, ah, I'm not feeling too good, 92, 93 years old. Maybe I should go to the doctor and just have him check it out. And she didn't come home. She went in, not too good. And now there's a funeral this coming week. And her daughter's conclusion was this. I only, my only comfort is going to be that God knows what he's doing. But there are so many others who would say in situations like that, God, what are you doing and why did you do this? If there is any resentment, any anger, can I encourage you to do this? Tell him. You mean say it to him? You're not telling him something he doesn't already know. And let him heal your heart. Let him give you counsel, counsel for your soul. And, and may I say to you this, even if there is not an answer as to why it occurred or did not occur, he can still give you an answer as to why you can yet still trust him. Rachel has a solution though. Here's my maidservant. I'll have children by her and she does. 
And then it's tit for tat. Leah sees what's going on and says, okay, game on. Here's my maidservant. And she has children through her. This antagonism continues. And the whole story of these is detailed in the names of their children. Gad and Asher and Naphtali. And how many of those children, the names of those children, give expression not to the thankfulness of the Lord for his goodness, but give expression to the sense of victory and triumph that they have over one another. (laughs) Do you see what a sorry mess has become or has come about in that family circle? Can you imagine being one of those kids? Mom said food's ready. Which mom? Your mom? My mom? Her mom? His mom? No, his mom. This is where many families are. We could all detail different sorry messes that make up our families. Who our fathers or mothers are or were, what kind of mess they or we might have come out of. And if not them, their parents, and if not them, their parents' parents, or just us. But I hope that you see the big picture in all of this. And there's two things that are striking and astonishing in this. Out of this mess is the origin of the 12 tribes of Israel. Isn't that something? That what God was doing in the midst of all of this chaos that we have been describing, all of this aggravation and sin and discontent, in the background, God was quietly working out his purposes as year succeeds to year. And God is quietly, as it were, Establishing those tribes that will eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. But not only that, but it is right here that Judah is born. And it is right here, through that family line, the one, not Rachel. And I know that in speaking to some of you last week, you said, I always thought Rachel was the descendant of Christ. No, it is Leah. For she bears Judah. And there will come one lion out of Judah who will reign as king of kings and lord of lords. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. We might say without this mess, there would be no Christ. Or out of this mess comes the Lord Jesus Christ. And doesn't that teach you and I something about the greatness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? If this, I'm speaking for myself, if, and I can go to my grandfather's father. That's as far back on my dad's side that I can reach. On my mom, mother's side, I can go back as far as my great-great-grandmother. I can understand what that lineage and history is. But if I'm sure that if this was my family, and I'm sure that it is my family somewhere down the line, I would keep all of this as quiet as possible. You're not going to know about my grandfather's four wives and 26 children. And I, will, I would tell you that I came from warriors and kings if this was my story. 
But do you see how that's not the case here? God shows us without a hint of secrecy what his eternal son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will enter into and shows us that there is no situation that he is not able to come to by his grace, redeem and transform to a most wonderful and glorious salvation. There is nothing that he can't redeem. And this could be your story. This could be, as you're sitting here this morning, you could be thinking about your family and the mess that is your family. Be encouraged by this. Out of that mess sits here you today. Redeemed and saved by grace. God is not incapable of taking the most twisted and chaotic situations and bringing someone out of them for his glory and by his grace. May I say to you, brother, and to you, sister, say something like that tonight. Because there will be young men sitting there in Camp Owens tonight who will be questioning, am I just destined to be a mess? No. And all of us can sit here this morning and say, I am evidence that there can be more if you trust and place your faith in Christ alone. Let's go to our third and last point. This is an interesting one. The surprising lesson of mandrakes. I had to Google what a mandrake is. This is verses 14 to 22. And it's told beautifully. There is little Reuben. How old is he? He is but a young boy. He's playing in the fields and he finds these mandrakes. He gathers them, brings them home to his mother, possibly as flowers. Mother, I brought you flowers today. And he seeks maybe an explanation as to, Mother, what are these things? They look like a green, uh, there's these green leaves sprouting from the top of them. And if you were to pull them up by the root, the root actually looks like a little man with a belly. Go Google mandrakes. You you will see it looks like a man who's kind of standing there with a belly. They're weird looking. Interesting to look at. But he brings these home. And at this time, it was believed that by breaking open the mandrakes, there was a smell that would produce or that had an aphrodisiacal, aphrodisiacal quality to them. If you don't know what an aphrodisiac is... Uh, Speak to someone who is maybe more worldly than you. (laughs) And they will tell you what it means. (laughs) There was also said to be, they also were said to have some kind of narcotic influence upon them as well. So then you could tune in and tune out by having some mandrakes, those of you who know about the 60s. But the mandrakes appear or reveal something that is absolutely appalling. Along comes Rachel and says to Leah, "Uh, would it be okay if I had some of Reuben's mandrakes? You know why she wants some of those mandrakes. Boom! Leah says, you stole my husband, and now you're trying to steal my son's mandrakes? The nerve. It was taken out of proportion, and there's something we might learn from that as well. When you have a conversation with someone and they blow off the handle. You can almost always know that their outburst has more to do with what you've just suggested 
or more to do with just mandrakes. You hear often they got divorced over leaving the cap off of the toothpaste tube. No, there was more that was going on there than just the cap of the toothpaste. Times with our spouse that they seem to get upset over the smallest things. And then you finally sit them down and say, what is going on? And then 20, 30 more things that have gone back six months come out. And you say, what? Well, that was just the, the straw that broke the camel's back. I understand. This spiteful response that she has. And she was the one, Leah, involved in the deception all along. God has been breaking her open, just like she hoped to break open those mandrakes all along. God is untwisting her. And this spite has gained the upper hand in her soul. She's broke. She's finally broken. She's had enough. And as the story goes on, we learn that it is, it is not the mandrakes that give children. Again, it is the Lord who gives children. But we also learn that all of these in the story have yet to bow their knee to the sovereign providence of God in their lives. You notice that throughout all of this, they've never admitted in all of their days, in all of the years, since the very first deceit, they've never really admitted that they've sinned. There's been no account of repentance here. They've all sinned. The younger daughter sinning by believing that it was somehow not her place, taking a step back. The older daughter believing that the only way she would have this man is by hook or by crook. And what's happening to Jacob? This man who met with God. What has come about from that grand revelation? And all of this is really a return and, and a, a reminder of home. Don't you see that? The deceitfulness on the part of his parents. The deception on his, own, on his own part. What did Jacob buy his birthright with? A bowl of lentil stew. And now look at him. He is being sold for a basket of mandrakes. But do you, do you see the divine footprints in all of this, did you see the divine hand of God over all of this? God is bringing to Jacob, to Leah, to Rachel, all of the things that are twisting up their lives. He is taking what has been twisted and untwisting it. But the only way that you can untwist something is by bringing it back to the place that it was twisted in. In each of their cases... They are not bowing down to the Lord and asking him to work in his providence to keep them steadfast in his word. They are going their own way. They're not praying, help me to come to you, to ask you for forgiveness. Bring something glorious out of this. Restore us to yourself. There's no prayer of that. Why? It's because they're all grasping for the wrong things. They're grasping for things in which they will never find lasting satisfaction. Again, where do you find satisfaction, brothers and sisters? What is it that gives you fulfillment and joy and completeness? 
you won't find it truly. And you won't find it lastingly. Until it is found in Christ. Why? Because God has set eternity in our hearts. And if eternity is in your heart and you're grasping for satisfaction elsewhere, in other places, you won't find it. Not if eternity has been set in your heart, meaning this, not if you are His. Again and again, refrain, the refrain of this whole sad story is this, that the covenant promise that is overarching all of this is, I will be with you. I will restore you. I will untangle the web. I will bring you home. I will set you free. I will be your eternal satisfaction. There's a hymn in closing that goes, I sighed for rest and happiness. I yearned for them, not thee. But while I passed my Savior by, his love was laid on me. I tried their broken cisterns, Lord, but all the waters failed. Even as I scooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. The pleasures lost, I sadly mourned, but never wept for thee. Till grace my sightless eyes received, thy loving thy loveliness to see. Now none but Christ can satisfy, none other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in thee. If there's anything as sure as sure can be, or as the old timers might say, if there's anything that could cause you to know that you know that you know. It is that there is nothing in all of the universe that can offer you lasting, loving peace and joy. But Christ. Maybe for 20 years some things. Maybe for 10 years some things. But not lastingly. Not eternally. Here they were, these three, being offered God. And they're fighting over mandrakes. How strange and yet how, how much just like us. More interested sometimes in mandrakes than our own eternal salvation. Let us not be so foolish. If grace has touched us, let it grow in our hearts that nothing may strangle the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring us home. Let's pray.